It was just clear that the problems were crying out for a technology solution. That's Mark Straub, the co-founder and CEO of Smile Identity. But to build Africa Stack was going to require working under a couple of key constraints. Africa Stack is a play on India Stack, India's pioneering platform of open APIs and digital infrastructure that underpins the country's rapid move towards a paperless, cashless, and digital future. It's India Stack that has unlocked abundant opportunity in the fintech space in the country. But whereas India Stack was built in one market with one currency and one regulator, and with significant government investment, for an Africa Stack to be built, it's invariably going to look different than its Indian counterpart. Anything that was going to get built would have to work across many, many different countries, different environments, technology environments. The policy environments were going to be different. The data availability was going to be different. And of course, not to mention things like culture and language. So I knew that was one constraint. Anything that got built would have to be very interoperable across different markets. And then a second constraint was that if you're going to build something new, you couldn't sort of start with the assumption that you're going to spend a billion dollars. This episode is the third and final episode in our three-part fintech series. In the first two, we explored payments, which is one layer of the stack. And in this episode, we get into the other layers to explore why Africa Stack is important, how an Africa Stack can be built for the continent, and what it means for our endeavor to serve users in a cashless, financially inclusive world. Before we start, we'd like to thank MFS Africa for their sponsorship and support of season three of the show. MFS Africa is also supporting and investing in the ecosystem through their Frontiers Fund. And one such investee is the Ugandan digital finance institution, Numida. Later in this episode, we're going to talk more about data and the data points that are useful to underwrite loans to small businesses across the continent. And it's something I talked to Numida's co-founder and CEO, Mina Shahid, about as well. We did start out building a really simplified financial management bookkeeping app for micro-entrepreneurs. The goal of, of that exercise was to collect cash flow data on these businesses and then create profile information about these businesses and share that information with partner microfinance institutions that we had signed up to incorporate into their underwriting processes. And after the nine months, not a single one of them was actually successful in, in getting a loan from one of these institutions, not because the cash flows said they couldn't afford a loan or or that they, you know, were, were not fundable, but because uh, the institutions were still unwilling to change their loan requirements. So, you know, they would automatically reject people because they didn't have collateral. They didn't have two guarantors. They didn't have audited financials. Very traditional underwriting rules got in the way. If you look at the traditional underwriting approach, it relies heavily on... I guess you would call it uh, repossessable assets to determine what size loan over what period of time, at what price can you provide to a customer. It's not really based on if I give this business owner $100 or $1,000, what will they turn this money into after one month, three months or six months or a year? It's much more about protecting that value that's been dispersed and, and asking the question, if I give this person $1,000, will this piece of collateral be worth more than that if I need to repossess it? And as a result, none of our, our app users actually got a loan. So 
that's essentially what led us to becoming a lender and starting to do it ourselves. Later on in this episode, we'll hear more from Mina on the data that Numita uses to determine their borrowers' credit worthiness and actually disperse loans to micro-entrepreneurs in Uganda. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. India has seen a meteoric rise in its tech ecosystem recently, and this year especially. The first half of 2021 saw Indian startups raise over $11 billion, with 16 reaching the vaunted unicorn status. Many, if not most, of these companies are built on top of and are enabled by IndiaStack. IndiaStack is, and I quote from their website, a set of APIs that allows governments, businesses, startups, and developers to utilize a unique digital infrastructure to solve India's hard problems towards presentless, paperless, and cashless service delivery. Cashless economies are something we talked about throughout the first two episodes of this season, as a North Star for building more inclusive economies than current economies, in which those in cash-based markets are excluded from traditional financial services. While in a saturated market like the US, digital neobanks, for example, are providing a superior customer experiences for many digital natives, there's a separate opportunity in India and African markets, and indeed most of the global South, for fintechs and digital solutions to not only offer a superior service, but to offer a service to customers that may not have previously had access to that service in an analog world. But the problem for an unbanked individual in the markets in question is not just that they can't get inclusive finance, but maybe that there's no one who can give it to them. There's the consumer problem, but then there's the problems consumer-facing fintechs face when trying to offer services to their customers. And underneath the consumer-facing fintechs are the B2B companies that are building solutions that make possible all that consumer-facing fintechs promise to their customers. The promise of IndiaStack is that it's the set of APIs that enables the consumer-facing fintechs to solve problems for their customers and ultimately to usher in a world with more financial inclusion. But India is one market. And in this episode, we wish to explore how Africa Stack gets built across fragmented markets and currencies and cultures and regulators. But before we start, what exactly is India Stack? It consists of four different layers that make this range of innovation possible. That is a, an identity verification layer like biometrics or ID verification, the consent layer. So that's consumer giving consent to what information can be verified and what, what can be permissioned or shared. A payments layer, so payments being able to be facilitated uh, that make use of either identity information or, or bank account information. And then lastly, a, a document layer, right? So digital documents being able to be verified or, or permissioned or, or federated. The payments or cashless layer is UPI, or the United Payments Interface, developed by the National Payments Corporation of India, a division of India's Reserve Bank. Its equivalents on the African continent include NIBs and GIPs, the Nigerian Interbank Settlement System and the Ghana Interbank Payments and Settlement Systems, where banks serve Africa and South Africa, whose head of modernization, Bishnin Kumalo, we heard from in episode one. Meanwhile, its identity layer is called Aadhaar, a pioneering biometric identity system, which has been called by the World Bank's chief economists, quote, the most sophisticated ID program in the world. And on top of Aadhaar, India's Identity Authority launched an eKYC platform, enabling businesses to perform know-your-customer verification digitally. So why is this, and indeed why is all of India Stack important? In the last two episodes, we explored the digital payments infrastructure, but to move to a truly cashless and wholly digital ecosystem requires other parts of the payments and financial services value chain to be digitized as well. Let's start with identity. Here's Mark Strop, who we heard from in the intro. 
So whenever you build a financial institution or even just a financial app, you're starting to touch money. And when you touch money, you begin to deal with risk, whether that's the risk of taking somebody's money and and losing it, or it's the risk of taking the wrong person's money or giving it to the wrong person, or giving money to people who aren't supposed to get it. And so for all those reasons, when you start to touch money, you need to be able to verify identity. Every regulated financial institution needs to verify the identity of their customers. It's what's known as KYC, Know Your Customer. Ultimately, for regulated financial transactions, identity and what's called Know Your Customer or KYC, it's part of the ecosystem and it's really a requirement to be operating in an ecosystem legally. But how do you identify people who technically have no identity? An article from The Economist, which I'll link to in the show notes, talks about the challenge Africans have to prove their identity. While in markets like Kenya or South Africa, 60 to 80% or more of births are registered, in Nigeria or Uganda, that number is between 20 and 40%, and in Tanzania, Ethiopia, or Malawi, that number is less than 20%. While birth registration is different from the issuance of identity documents, that can be a challenge too. According to the article, Nigeria, for example, has 13 federal and three state ID schemes and the country's National Identity Management Commission, a body set up in 2007 with the purpose of issuing identity numbers and cards to Nigeria's 200 million or so people, has so far reached less than a fifth of the population. Whereas Aadhaar in India is one centralized entity attempting to identify 1 billion Indians, to identify 1 billion Africans requires entities across the continent's 54 countries, some of which have more than one group responsible for the task. And so if you're a Nigerian trying to open an account, Notwithstanding the fact that you may not live anywhere near a bank, how can you open an account in this context? We integrate with and aggregate different ID authorities and ID sources from across the continent. And we can verify a whole range of credentials, but including ID numbers, names, dates of birth. We can also confirm whether or not a user is who they say they are by doing a biometric check basically matching a face against an ID card or a face against an ID photo inside of an ID authority or a database uh, from a financial institution. And the combination of all these things provides uh, KYC or Know Your Customer solutions for a range of financial institutions and financial startups across the continent. In the context of the fragmentation we just described, Smile sources identity data from a variety of systems. In some cases, there are ID systems that we can rely on. The challenge sometimes is the uptime of those systems. So, you know, we'll we'll frequently see downtime or uh, availability gaps. But very often there are, at least in some of the larger markets, uh, there are ID systems with capabilities to do this kind of verification that, that we can integrate to or that we can rely on. And where there isn't as reliable identity infrastructure or data, that's another problem that Smile has to solve for. The challenge then is as you get out of sort of the largest economies, you get into the smaller or mid-sized markets where they're still building infrastructure um, or where there maybe there's a variety of legacy infrastructure in place. So there's maybe three or four different ID systems, not a single one, is then you've got to aggregate, you've got to qualify and test with all these different ID systems. And when they are when they're not reliable or when there's nothing there, you have to have a fallback mechanism. So what we've tended to fall back on is ID cards in some places, or in other places, alternative data sets. So data sets that come from, for example, a banking system or telecommunications system. Now, there's actually two problems here. One is on customer experience. 
making it hard for consumer-facing fintechs to fulfill their promise of open an account in five minutes or less when the identity infrastructure in a given market is subpar. But worse still is when subpar infrastructure precludes a customer from opening a bank account at all, giving you, the consumer, less access than you might have been promised. Then, from a fintech's perspective, this makes scaling your business extremely cumbersome, if not impossible altogether. Time and time again, I saw fintechs that should be growing faster than they were, but they were limited by the rate that they could onboard and verify new customers. And they would throw what I call the three Ps at it. So they would throw either people, process, or paperwork at the problem. So a company that might be able to onboard 500 customers a day was limited to 50 because the back office staff could only work through that much paper in one day. Now, identity is one aspect of KYC. Another is address verification. That's a challenge as well. The challenge for half the world is that most buildings don't have physical addresses. So what that means is the building doesn't have a number or a name. It's not tied to a road that has a name. And there certainly isn't any zip code or postcode to identify the area. That's Timbo Drayson, the co-founder and CEO of address verification platform, OKHI. And the reality of that is that it causes huge number of problems across the market and economy. It makes it incredibly difficult for delivery businesses to find your door. And for financial services that need to have a verified address as part of, sort of KYC, there is no database to be able to verify that address against. In these markets, and for the fintechs that need to verify addresses as part of KYC, doing so becomes cumbersome and expensive. Today, if you're a financial service and you want to offer uh, certain services, you have to, by the regulator, have a verified address. And really, there's three ways that that is solved today. One, you send a physical agent to someone's door. Now, that can take weeks, and it can cost up to about 2,000 naira. So that's about $4. The other is that you try and collect utility bills from your customer that has an address. The challenge is, is that actually most people do not have utility bills in their name. And even if they do, there is an issue around fraud because it's very easy to just copy and paste these utility bills. The third is that you potentially don't do anything and you just take on the regulatory risk. And so that's kind of where things are looking at today. And so much like analog identity verification is a barrier to scale and a problem that Smile Identity is trying to solve with technology, so too is this physical address verification a barrier to scale and a problem that OKHI OK is trying to solve with technology as well. Our digital software essentially replaces where perhaps a bank is asking for an address from a customer. So you can imagine if I'm a banking customer, I've downloaded their app and I'm signing up onboarding to this new banking application. And normally the banking app asks for your address and it's just a text box. And that's where I'm typing in, you know, my text directions of how to get there, which is problematic because obviously it's inaccurate. There's no way to get a digital GPS from it. And as I said, you actually don't know whether that address is real or not. And so we replace that text box with some software that ultimately enables the customer to create their OK High address. So that means they're able to drop a pin on the map they're able to find a photo of their property and we partner with Google Street View. And then they're also able to add any other text information that might be 
you know, the specific floor or apartment number that they're living at. And what that results in is an address verification that is 30% more accurate. We can do it four times faster and we do it at half the cost. Coming up, more on KYC and regulation. And after the break, we'll move on to the next layer of Africa Stack. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, MFS Africa. Earlier in the show, we heard from Mina Shahid, the co-founder and CEO of Numida and an MFS Africa investee, on how they got into microfinance lending in Uganda. As their experience shows, it's not just about data, but about underwriting practices that work better for the borrowers in question. We built our initial credit scoring model without any verified transaction data. And so we collect self-reported cash flow information in our app, and we care less about the actual values that are recorded and much more about the behavior of how the entrepreneur actually reports this information. And that's one input of many inputs into the underwriting model, which has proven to be quite effective in predicting repayment rates. It's not about the quantity of data that you're getting, but it's about the quality of the data and how the data works together. Um, So in our credit model, we only use 15 key features to determine somebody's credit worthiness. And for example, what does it mean when somebody's uh, current loan is coming due and the day before that loan, they, they open the app to record and backdate a bunch of information? Or what does it mean that somebody opens the app every day at 9 a.m. and puts in the information from yesterday's results? It's quite nuanced, but we have found that the behavioral information is a very interesting insight into more, not not necessarily into the size of the business and, you know, what their margins are and all of that, but the credibility of the entrepreneur. Now, there's one question I had for Timbo about why address verification is important in the first place. If people don't have addresses, isn't it problematic that banks have to ask for it? The way I see regulation in the address verification space is that it's a good thing. You know, if you are a financial service and you are offering financial loan products to your customer, it is really important that there is some level of due diligence and to try and mitigate fraud, anti-money laundering, etc. So the reality is these financial institutions need to manage their risk. And in the context of financial inclusion, Entrepreneurs like Mark and Timbo are finding ways to include those within the parameters of existing regulation who have previously struggled to verify their identity or address. You know, it's very critical that these levels of KYC are managed. You know, the regulation is there to protect the end customer and, you know, ultimately the businesses. It needs to be done in a way that is not cumbersome for the end consumer and not expensive and high friction for the business. And, you know, obviously this is where technology can come in and disrupt. And we're seeing that across the KYC stack. So when the goal is financial inclusion and an important opportunity within financial inclusion is the availability of credit and lending to both businesses and consumers, the next level of the stack beyond identity is data. Whereas a well-served bank customer has a credit score and financial transaction history, the problem for the on or underbanked is when their transaction history is scattered across multiple different apps operated by different companies, not to mention the lack of digital data in cash-first economies. Even if they get through the identity requirements, 
A consumer might still have less access to financial services if, for example, the underwriter doesn't think they know enough about your creditworthiness. This is where the data layer comes in, and the many API-first infrastructure companies building as part of the open banking wave. Open banking is a term used to describe the process of APIs that enable third-party developers to securely, and with their customers' permission, access data, better connecting financial services providers, other sources of data, and technical providers, all for the customer's benefit. A pioneer of open banking globally is Plaid, the U.S. fintech whose core product allows consumer apps to connect to a customer's banking institution, enabling customers to, for example, transfer money from their bank account into a fintech app without having to leave that app, or to share financial information that can be used for something like credit scoring. The Plaid-esque experience is undoubtedly a superior customer experience in developed markets, but in emerging markets, these data layer fintechs also have the opportunity to garner access for users that previously had less access. And a comparable company operating in African markets is Mono. Here's Abdul Hassan, its co-founder and CEO. So at Mono, we are enabling digital businesses in Africa access customer data and identity data through a single API. Mono is building the infrastructure, making it possible to connect a variety of financial institutions in Nigeria. And the number of connections and use cases has continued to grow since the time of our recording. We've connected to about 20 financial institutions in Nigeria uh, where we can retrieve financial data from. So bank statements, transactions, return balance, income, credit and debit, right? So those financial data can then be used by businesses like to maybe perform credit score, or maybe you want to build a new experience in your application, in your your web app, right? So you can use those financial data. In order to transfer the data from where it originates to the end user of the data, and in order to do so reliably, Mono employs a process called reverse engineering. Banks generally are well known for having bad API documentation. (laughs) It's not like they are the one giving us the APIs, right? So what we've done is like we actually get access to the private APIs of the financial institutions, right? So what I, what I mean is like, we actually use their APIs using their mobile application and their web app, right? So it's like us calling their service directly. So people call it reverse engineering. So that's what we've done today. Um, and that's why like our APIs are very stable. Now, access to data and data aggregation is one part of the puzzle. Then data analysis is another part. But for data to be maximally useful to Mono's customers requires network effects. For Mono in Nigeria, that's meant starting with bank accounts. How can we enable access to all these bank accounts that people have already? But right now, my focus and our focus as a company is like, there's a market right now with people that have internet banking, we have bank accounts. How can we eat that market? That's what we focused on. <laughs> yeah. So if we have a lot of merchants on board, and then those merchants have millions of customers, everything then get connected. That's why I say like we're a data company, to be honest, like Mono is a data company. There's definitely a network effect. Let's take a step back for a moment to talk about an important consideration in the context of data approvals and open banking. Mono's ability to perform these functions comes down to user permissions. When a user is on a FinTech app and is asked to log into their bank account within the app, they are granting permission to Mono to access their data on their behalf. That's an important part of the open banking movement. Who owns the data? Previously, the banks or the telcos would say that it's their data, but open banking and open banking regulation says that it's the consumer's data to share with whomever and however they wish. The idea is if data can be aggregated across a myriad of data sources, it can be more useful and better utilized by third parties, 
for the benefit of the consumer. What we're seeing is those walls, those data moats, those moats they've built are gradually coming down and the walls and the silos are coming down. That's Brendan Playford, the co-founder and CEO of PingMe. The reason is because we're going direct to the user to give permission to access their data. Not only is there this kind of wave of innovation with open banking technology in the way that Plaid has sort of been able to get to the user's data with the user's permission, we've got that wave happening in Africa. But additionally, like there is both a on-the-ground wave happening of paradigm shift with people thinking that or wanting to own their data. Then there is regulatory shift with GDPR-like regulation coming out to for these institutions to open their data. And then open banking where fintechs like us are finding ways around, to be honest with you, the walls that these companies have put in place and allowing the user to share their data. Now, where PingMe comes in is slightly adjacent to Mono at the moment, but also a crucial element of the data empowerment stack. Whereas Mono, which started in the bank-led market that is Nigeria and have initially been focused on banking data, PingMe is focused on USSD, the telco rails that power mobile money, which is important in the context of financial inclusion and how most consumers on the continent transact digitally. Essentially, a huge amount of Kenya's GDP and other countries' GDP are transmitted and transferred or, or settled on USSD. What that means is a lot of the data that we're familiar with in banking terms in the US or credit records in the US are confined outside of banks into this kind of mobile money layer. And a lot of the settlement and a lot of the confirmations are done using SMS. So SMS records hold a huge amount of transactional data. And the way that we approached the market was we decided that we would go down the USSD kind of scraping route, which is a completely different approach where we decided that USSD was the primary channel of choice for those that had least access today. What we're trying to do is unlock that data and allow any developer to use it and offer financial services using that data pool. Ultimately, the data empowerment layer is about painting a clearer picture from the data that already exists. When you look at this mobile money ecosystem, every service on top of it is different. In Nigeria, it's roughly seven to eight accounts a user has. That can be a mobile money account, a bank account, maybe a couple of digital lending accounts, similar across the other markets. And that creates an incredibly fragmented financial picture. As we talked about with Mono, data aggregation is one piece of the puzzle, but data analysis is then an important capability to build on top to increase the utility of the data. How do you go from data to end product that uses data? There's a connection there. We use machine learning and natural language processing to essentially extract all of the financial information. So it comes in as this unstructured kind of mess We do a lot of machine learning through one of our pipelines. It comes out the other end structured, and it looks like full balances and transactions. The idea here is to make it easier for other fintechs and developers to use this data without themselves having to have a robust team of machine learning engineers or data scientists. It means that out of the box, a developer or an engineer can just go straight and use those machine learning features, those credit aggregations, the raw transactional data if they want to, and it gives them that kind of like leg up where it can otherwise cost a lot of money or take months to build that infrastructure. And we saw that as a big barrier to adoption. And we really thought that like addressing that barrier early on for our platform is a really kind of good value add, we hope, for developers. Taking another step back for a minute to the topic of why Africa Stack is important. An explicit goal of these platforms and the open banking movement is financial inclusion. Globally, the population of unbanked is 1.7 billion, 
according to the World Bank's Global Findex database, with Asia followed by Africa as the regions with the largest unbanked population. In that report, the number one reason cited for why was having too little money to use an account. And as we heard in the first two episodes of this season, select fintechs are trying to overcome the cost and accessibility problem through models like agency banking or free peer-to-peer transfers. But data and the proliferation of open banking platforms like Mono and PingMe make it more feasible for financial services providers to improve their lending decisioning, new product development, and ultimately reach greater revenue potential. And this is perhaps a key difference between a company like Plaid operating in the data layer in the US and what data layer startups are doing in emerging markets. Plaid and its frictionless user experiences is nice to have. Availing the utilization of transaction data of financially excluded customers, that's a need to have. I think it's a, one of the huge benefits of, of this technology and what everyone is doing in the space, you know, in general, when it comes to data focused, you know, fintech solutions or fintech solutions that are focused around data. In terms of what that means for the end user, the reason why it drives such huge growth for the institution is because it gives the institution this ability to customize credit in a, in a real time way for every individual where they just haven't been able to before. You see, here's what the status quo looks like. If you imagine seeing a thousand people coming through your door on a Monday morning asking for loans, you have to be incredibly discerning if you've got a team of five people manually collecting together all your data. You're gonna have a very high threshold with one heuristic, which may be you're a government worker. And if you're a government worker, you go to the, like, the underwriting pile. If you're not, you get ejected. So that simple heuristic increases efficiency. Whereas a digital data-driven future and one in which more consumers have access to financial services looks like this. Now, as soon as you make that digital and you add pre-qualification to it, you then can sort people into more specific buckets so you can spend more time in each one of those buckets providing a specific product specifically to that person. So I think that's the most exciting thing actually about where this innovation is gonna go is that it means that you're not gonna have that 70% of people that aren't government workers excluded from the system, there's gonna be someone that is gonna find a great product that fits with them, the business is gonna make money, and the individual is gonna see huge benefit and value, and that's really, really exciting. But what else needs to happen for Africa Stack to reach its full potential? We can already see how Africa Stack is going to come together through a range of private and public initiatives across various regions on the continent and across various layers of the stack. Here's Smile Identity's Mark Straub again. It's not going to get done sort of with with one stroke of a pen by a government body. It's going to happen in pieces. It's going to happen regionally first. And I think there's some good to that because usually innovation doesn't happen top down. It happens kind of bottom up. But it does require it does require a policy environment that is open-minded and that is flexible, but also that's clear. This is where the collaboration and interplay between public sector and private sector is crucial. That's sort of the foundational piece that governments and central banks need to provide, which is, you know, clear laws and rules about what information is required to conduct a payment, what information is required to open up a bank account. But it also needs to be up to date. So the rules, you know, should be able to incorporate technology solutions and not just physical or legacy solutions. And we are seeing, you know, some very forward-thinking policymakers get ahead of this and try to create, whether it's open banking initiatives, whether it's uh, new data privacy regulation that takes into account modern technology and the internet. 
And I think what you'll see is ultimately the markets where there is sort of the best policy frameworks that incorporate or allow for technology and innovation, but also that make clear what the rules are and they kind of lay out the rules of the game. That's where you're also going to see the most innovation happening. Like so much else on the continent, AfricaStack is going to happen slowly over time and with explicit intention from the builders, innovators, and regulators working to improve upon the status quo. It's going to take time and, you know, it's going to be a bit messy, you know, probably not as clean as the story as, as India, uh, where you sort of had one, one market and, you know, one set of policies. But I do think that over the next three, four, five years, you know, this identity uh, piece is going to start becoming clearer and clearer. And the payments piece is kind of already there. So as those two pieces come together, you really start to have the foundation of the stack and then everything else kind of falls into place. That's it for this episode of The Flip. As always, if you like this episode, please do share it with a friend. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on social media at The Flip Africa. And for episode show notes and additional written content, subscribe to our newsletter on our website, theflip.africa. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.